0: Hey podcast listeners, so the episode you're about to listen to recorded with Samina Akhtar was recorded just a few hours before the terrible stabbings of residents and a police officer at the Park Inn Hotel in Glasgow on Friday, June the 26th. This was a hotel where asylum seekers who were previously housed in um, flats and other accommodation were forcibly moved at the start of lockdown. So obviously we don't talk about that, but do delve into the structures and policies that have led to those migrants in the Park inn being forcibly moved there and being subjected to the dehumanising treatment they've received from immigration authorities and their contractors. Please bear this tragic incident in mind throughout the discussion of today's topic, which is state racism. One outcome of this is the violence that has been inflicted on these most marginalised people in Scotland today. And I hope you find the discussion informative. Please check out the Noevictiontions campaign on Twitter to support their work and see how these marginalized people are standing up for themselves and staking a claim for their place in Scotland today. Hi everybody! Welcome back to another episode of the Anti-Racist Educator podcast. My name is Hashim, welcome back. Um, we're continuing our series of talking to prominent anti-racist activists in Scotland about how we do anti-racism. So this episode is kind of prompted by lots of conversations that have been happening in, uh, in education about what do we need to do about racism? How do we address it in schools? How do we move forward? A lot of people will be quite familiar, and a lot of the things that have been coming out recently have focused potentially on interpersonal racism. So, maybe that racism that you um, see in the playground or between people in the staff room, uh, that kind of face to face thing. And with the conversation around George Floyd, uh, the killing of George Floyd at the hands of the police, um, we at the Anti Racist Educator thought it was necessary to shed light on the complexity of racism and how much deeper perhaps it runs in our society. Um, with us today is someone who can help us shed light on this deep structural nature of racism here in Scotland. Um, is researcher and anti-racist campaigner Samina Akhtar. Hi Samina, how are you? Hi Hashem, I'm good, I'm good, how are you? I'm good, yeah, a little bit hot, the weather's still with us, mugginess is everywhere, Um, but yeah, I'm good, I'm really happy to speak to you and uh, learn a bit more about what you're doing. So could you give us just a brief outline of maybe who you are, what you've done in terms of anti-racism and the research that you've been doing?
1: Okay, yeah, I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Glasgow. Um, I'm a bit older than the other students, because I've actually worked in the voluntary sector for probably about 20 years, and I've decided to go back to, um, to study, to do a PhD. So my research is on state racism, um, and I'm kind of looking at a few case studies. I've looked at the Sheku case, I'm kind of looking at police racism, but I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, and I'm also looking at um, the evictions of uh, people seeking asylum they were announced I think it was a couple of years ago and then CERCO announced them again last year and yesterday we just heard from the new accommodation um, contractor that they will not be changing locks of uh, people in the asylum system because Circo had said they were going to basically evict people in the asylum system, about 300 of them, by changing their looks, which is probably the most violent way of making people destitute. Um, So I want to argue that that is state racism, but I want to do that through looking at the history of immigration and migration. And, And then we can kind of explore you know, rather than giving a really succinct four-line definition of state racism. And we can talk about that um, because I don't think that's possible. Um, We can talk about why that's not possible later. But um, I want to kind of explore and explain what we mean by it by just looking at the history and basically looking at what's happening now.
0: Great. Um, I think those are really vital things to hear about. I hadn't actually heard about that news, about that people's locks aren't going to be getting changed. That's fantastic news. Um, hopefully that's some something that will keep on going and it's not just going to be something temporary. Would you like to tell us more about how you came to do the research you're doing and why you think it's important, perhaps, in shedding light on state racism?
1: Um, I think the reason I wanted to look at state racism rather than um, just interpersonal, interactional kind of microaggressions was because I was aware like these types of racism, they don't come from it. They don't just appear. You know, there's a root to them. We have to look at, well, where, where are they actually rooted? How, do they, how are they produced? And um, and obviously we know about colonialism, we know about empire, and we know about slavery, and we want to. I wanted to look at well, how does that live on? Does that live on in the current British states policies? And uh, and that's why I wanted to look at state racism. So I wanted to get into the roots of where this racism comes from.
0: Yeah, I, I think in preparation for this episode, um, some thoughts that were going through my head were like thoughts to do with addressing maybe myths around how welcoming Scotland and other places are for migrants and maybe some myths about what I don't know what leads people to migrate and stuff and like one thing that jumped out was that Scotland um, and maybe the UK to a certain extent um, is kind of seen as a melting pot, and Scotland particularly as a uniquely welcoming place for migrants. Um, does this feature in any way in your research, like that, like trying to deal with those ideas that people have?
1: I think I think it does, and it will more. Um, what we, in terms of migration and immigration, you've got to remember that it's actually. We have devolution, but we don't have control of immigration and migration and asylum policies as a reserved matter. But we do implement them and we implement the like bordering policies through like local institutions, state local institutions like education. And, um, NHS less so because in Scotland, Scottish government has said we're not going to do bordering, we're not going to check people's passports. You know, um, healthcare is a right for everybody. Um, in education as well, but um, in terms of policing, yeah, immigration police are deployed in Scotland as well to do raids. Um, so, so it's it is quite complex it's very very complex and also social work social work is devolved um but you know some of the stuff that social work's been doing or rather not doing um in terms of particularly asylum is um you know needs to be questioned and we can talk a little bit about that
0: that'd be good um, could you tell us more about that
1: Um, When the evictions were announced a couple of years ago, um, Glasgow City Council had said that um, they would, uh, well, I don't know if they said it then, but they did say at some point during the process that nobody who was vulnerable, no person in the asylum system who who was vulnerable would be um, on that list of circles, list of being evicted. But what we found out was that no vulnerability assessments had been done. And there were elderly people, there were sick people on that list. Um, so there had, there should have been some working together of um, the Home Office and, um, and the council. And, and there probably was, but there was, there was basically work that this council should have done and it didn't do.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, what is your understanding through your research about what state racism is and perhaps how it's different to what people believe racism to be?
1: Well, let's go back in history, right? Let's go back to post-war Britain. And post-war Britain was a post-war Britain. There was there was no devolution. Scotland was part of Britain completely. So you had like people who were already racialized through slavery and colonization. And um, Britain, after the war, needed basically needed um, workers, and um, it passed the 1948 Nationality Act, which gave the status of British subject to people from the ex-colonies. And about 500,000 black and brown British subjects migrated between 1948 and 1962, which is. But what people don't know is. That Subjecthood Act was actually designed not to allow black and brown people to come to Britain. It was actually for, the British state thought that it would be white South Africans and white Australians coming. So very quickly, you know, ministers were quite shocked. So the, um, so state discourses were constructed, you know, things like, or if there's too many of them, then that's gonna cause racism, that's gonna cause racial attacks. So the problem was put very much on the numbers. So it wasn't that racism was a problem. That wasn't the discourse that was constructed. The discourse that was constructed was that it was the number of black and brown people that were the problem they were causing racism. So because there were too many of them, too many of them, Um, The 1962 Act quickly required that a passport had to be issued by Britain or Ireland. Now, how many black or brown people would have a passport issued by Britain? You know, um, so the Act didn't, I think it's really important to be aware that the Act didn't actually um, talk about colour, culture, country, or origin, it didn't remove subjecthood. But it made it quite hard for black and brown people to come. And then the 68 Act, that was basically what stopped primary immigration, um, required that you had to have one or two generations of grandparents born in Britain. And at that time, 98% of uh, British people were white. So you see how state policies, state legislation Doesn't actually have to talk about race, talk about colour, talk about background. It doesn't, it excludes in a way that has an impact that is racist, but within the legislation it can be denied. And I think the 1981 Act, the Citizenship Act, again made no reference to race, but it was racist in its effect. It created the category of British citizen which could only be granted to those who were born in Britain if at least one of their parents was a citizen. So what I mean by, when we talk about racism, it's a means of classifying, it's a means of distinguishing, you know, opposing populations. And at that time, it was about, you know, in terms of origin, you know, categories of origin. But we have, obviously, we have cultural racism. So a state racism is something that the state does. The state is the protector of the integrity and the superiority of the so-called race. It's something that the state does. It pursues out of its own interests. It's not siding with black, it's not siding with the white population. It's something that it does of its own. So that's what we mean by state racism. That's why state racism is different from interpersonal racism and institutional racism. But it's obviously reproduced outside, so it's reproduced by the media. It's re- I mean, it's reproduced in education as well, isn't it?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, like, I think um, on our website, actually, uh, we had an anonymised account of um, a teacher in a Scottish school who used some of the comments that, some of the explicitly racist comments, perhaps, that Boris Johnson um, made about women wearing burqas, referring to them as was it lighter boxes, and those like racist tropes um, yeah as you 're saying have been picked up by people throughout society and are like used in different ways um, and I think when you talk about state racism that um, it 's sometimes one of the most tricky ones to criticize. And it feels that particularly in education, um, as teachers, and I'm a primary teacher myself, that that is one kind of racism that is almost taboo to a certain extent. Like It's, it's, it's almost impossible to talk about the state itself being racist or perhaps being critical of some of the institutions that we cherish like as a nation, like for example, Remembrance Day, like being in any way critical about the celebration is, would be unheard of in a school, but would be necessary to kind of shed light on like racist practices and policies when it comes to the military in that case. But then when it comes to migration and migration policy, as you say, um, these things aren't explicitly racist. There was no words on paper that said we don't want any Indians or Pakistanis. But in effect, like that was the outcome, and people would find it abhorrent. I suppose to think that that was something that was almost, you know, engineered in a certain way, or something that just felt like common sense. Almost, it felt like almost common sense to exclude black and brown people, but welcome in people from the dominions of Canada and Australia.
1: Yeah, because they, you know, they they kind of belong to you. So it's about decide, you know, about constructing conversation about you know in terms of well who belongs and who doesn't belong and you do that and obviously that's done through language so you've got and it's done and it's done through practice as well I mean when education became universal it was it was the, the height of empire wasn't it and you had um the books that were written that were used in schools were were very much about um celebrating and the law not celebrating but very much about loyalty it's about encouraging people to be loyal to the state to the government you know this was a good thing that was happening so education is used to reproduce that state racism and i think when we when we look more at asylum in particular You see that type of language in those conversations and discourses um, even more clearly. Uh, Remember, immigration problematized the presence of a whole people. And and that was like color-coded, you know, immigration. Uh, But remember, it wasn't always like that. I mean, Ireland was Britain's first colony. So Irish were racialized as well. But the state... But the racism experienced by the Irish is is different, and we can talk about that. Like, f- so for example, with um, asylum, it was the Immigration and Asylum Act one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine which created, like, it it formally made a distinguished distinction between asylum seeker and refugee. Um, so it gave more rights to people who had proven that there were refugees and less rights to to, to people in the asylum system, people seeking asylum. And it created a two-tier welfare system as well. So it kind of created this, encouraged this hierarchical sorting of people, which is basically done through dehumanizing categories and putting people in a deserving and undeserving spectrum. Spectrum. So you had like the construction of razor wires, electric fencing, detention camps and the types of discourses that are created. You know remember you you, most refugees um, are now from a a Muslim background so they're called terrorists, they're called bogus, they're scroungers. Uh, So you're basically labeling refugees that are fleeing war and persecution in very, very, using, you know, using very negative language. and um,
0: Could you tell us actually a a, a bit more about that history of anti-immigrant, anti-asylum and refugee discourse in Scotland? Because um, I was was reading a really good article written by uh, Joel White recently, you might have seen it yourself, about the about the door locks and about the history of, um, of uh, the asylum system in the UK and how it was dispersed to centres across the UK. Um, so it, it would be really interesting to hear about that, like when asylum seekers started um, being sent en masse. I suppose, to Scotland and maybe what happened around about that?
1: Well, it was Glasgow. Glasgow was the biggest um, um, dispersal area. And the reason that happened was basically a lot of refugees were, um, and, I, and I, I I speak about everybody in the asylum system as a refugee. I don't want to make that distinguished because distinction between asylum seeker and refugee, unless I absolutely have to, because it's a very ideological one. But yeah, yeah. Um, it was basically done for two reasons. First of all, a lot of refugees were settling in the southeast. Now, that is a tourist area, isn't it, for Britain? And then again, and, there were, and, and housing was provided by local authorities and social landlords, and the, the state in order to, and, and that was also the height of austerity at that time. So the state, in order to save money, created dispersal areas, and Glasgow benefited from that because Glasgow at that time had council housing um, it had council housing and it had um, you know lots and lots of empty houses, lots of houses that people didn't want to live in. So the government actually paid the council for accommodating um, refugees and people, uh, well basically people in the asylum system. and So it was kind of where racism met austerity and when dispersal first happened, you know, people were li- living in the high-rise flats and so on and so forth. And in 2012, what happened was um, the privatisation. So it was about saving money for, the, for government because, um, I, and I'm trying to remember how much, but it was a lot of money. It was about 140 million pounds over a five or seven year period. And that's where privatisation happened local authorities basically couldn't couldn't go for these contracts it's basically a really really bare contract of asylum only and that's where private contractors were brought in and uh, circle was um no it wasn't circle it was one before that um but was, i think it was another company that was managing it for them and that's how that that's basically where racism met austerity. And um, it was, like I said, you know, a complete, complete severing of people in the asylum system from the welfare system. So I think people got about £35 a week to live on. And plus, horrible, horrible housing that is um, that is um, basically sought from private landlords, you know, on Gumtree. Basically, that's what happens. So Serco and now Mayors acquire housing from private landlords, landlords that can't really rent out because it's such bad accommodation, like really, really the worst accommodation in the city. And I think about 70% or more of asylum accommodation is private rented. It's not housing. It's not uh, GHA or... Um, or um, uh, Uh, or social landlords it's not housing associations so it's i mean i've seen some of that housing it's horrible it's absolutely disgusting
0: yeah and it's been like as you're saying it's not a coincidence that these things have happened that the most vulnerable people have ended up in the worst circumstances and also just for people that don't know um people in in, in the asylum system don't have any right to work either whereas in the past they did so with that gradual tightening of it's not even privileges it's just basic like rights even to live in the uk life has been made like ever more difficult and i think people can see it if they look at uh, like actual government documents to make the prospect of coming to the uk as um unattractive as possible if people believe that people come to the uk because they think it's um an attractive prospect Could you talk more about those experiences?
1: Well, let's talk about what's happening now. I mean, during the pandemic, what's basically happened is that about 300, possibly more, up to 400 people in the asylum system were taken from their homes by Mears, who is the contractor, for the Home Office. So the Home Office kind of, um, you know, likes to... Um, shed its responsibility by, by basically saying, well, it's not us, it's them, it's um, you know the contractors with mayors. But basically, mayors took about up to four hundred people who had homes were physically isolating in their homes to hotels, crammed them into like, like these really really cheap hotels in Glasgow because they're empty during the pandemic, you know, and people aren't able to distance. At all and they're given this horrible food so where people could cook their food themselves they're basically given meals and I don't know if you heard like a lot of them were um, had basically gone on a on a strike not a hunger strike because uh, food was being donated to them but they were basically not eating food that were provided by the hotels, it was it was like beige food. It was horrible. I saw some of the pictures, and some of it was mouldy as well, like mouldy bread um, that were that they were given. I mean, I, I'm on, I'm involved in the No Evictions Network, and that was why the demonstration was called.
0: So, just for background, there was a there was a demonstration. Was it last weekend, Samina?
1: It was on, well, it, it was a couple of days before the weekend one. It was the Wednesday one. And that's where basically the loyalists, protect, so-called protecting statues, there were about 200, 200 of them, um, said that they were going to have a counter-protest. So you had the No Evictions Network, led by refugees who were basically saying, look, we're not going to eat this food. This is disgusting. You know, we wouldn't cook this food for ourselves why you were giving us this food and I actually spoke to one of them and he and uh, he spoke to the staff um, in the hotels the mayor staff because uh, the refugees were basically saying well can we not cook we know how to cook you know we don't want to eat this food mm-hmm. and they said no the, home, the, no the home office decides what you eat
0: like that's just terrible like how, how can people not have a choice over what they put in their own mouths it's, that's incomprehensible almost.
1: Well, they don't have a choice where they live and who they live with. So they've basically been put in these hotels and they don't know how long for. We don't know what's happened to the accommodation that they were in before at all. So, yeah, so this is... I mean, th- this was great to see in terms of it was the refugees, it, w- it was the people in the hotels who basically said no, we're not doing this. So they were taking control. They were basically using their agency to say no. And actually, some of the hotel in some of the hotels, uh, and, we, and they've been posting pictures because I'm on WhatsApp groups, and they've been posting pictures saying the food's actually got a little bit better. So you can see how. Even the activism of a group of people in the asylum system who have, you know, very very little, you know, they have the power to refuse food, and also the fact that there was one um, person who um, who died as well, an Albi. Um, so obviously mayors don't want any more bad publicity. So yeah, they've they've got agency, and um, they're slowly enacting change.
0: Yeah, how do you think that we can, obviously Scotland is, we don't have complete control over immigration policy, but how do you think we can help to counter these narratives of perhaps one thing that comes to mind is Scottish exceptionalism when it comes to um, welcoming people from outside and also chipping away or doing away with this deserving migrant, undeserving migrant binary, like what do you see as the way forward in in that?
1: Well the problem, the problem is more complex in Scotland because what you've got in England is you've got a very Tory and and a quite racist government so what, what they say is essentially what they do so you, we're not surprised at what happens in england right in scotland it's it's actually more complex and it's more difficult because what we have is we have a government and a local authority that says we welcome refugees we want refugees we want people in the asylum system we and we, so we've got all of this rhetoric but then when you actually dig underneath you find that there's not there is difference obviously there is difference because uh, like i said earlier on with the nhs you know scottish nhs doesn't check passports you know everybody's entitled to healthcare but when you check you know other other services other state institutions providing services there's we we are still under the control of the no recourse to public funds, so people in the asylum system don't have access to, you know, the the welfare system that everybody else has. But also, when you look at the practices, like I said before, you know, no vul- vulnerability assessments were done by the council, you know, and and they can basically say, look, these people are vulnerable, therefore you can't affect them. They, they, there were things that could have been done practices and processes that could have been followed to avoid people being made destitute. And yesterday in the news, which we kind of referred to, was mayors have said they're not going to change locks. They have not said they will not evict. Mm
0: -hmm. We
1: have to be clear about that. They will evict through the courts. And that process is very quick to evict people in the asylum system. Because people in the asylum system are not tenants. Legally, they are occupiers. They aren't tenants. Very, very quick to evict occupiers. And that that's an example of internal bordering that doesn't just happen in England, it happens in Scotland as well. I mean, it would be good to see what would happen if migration and immigration was devolved. Would it be different in Scotland?
0: Is there anything that hints towards that if we did end up being an independent country, that it would be substantially different to what we see down south? Or do you think it would maybe be more of the same, perhaps, in a different guise?
1: It's difficult to make predictions, isn't it? But when we look under the surface, we see it's the same. And even when, when Scottish devolved institutions are implementing their policies. They're not doing, th- doing it that much differently, even though the rhetoric is different. So, although it's difficult to predict, and I'm not gonna predict, it's, it would be worth looking at. It would, it would, I mean, the thing is, Scotland does need people. It needs, it needs migrants. We're mm-hmm. a small population. Um, so I really don't know. There's no way I would say, yes, it would be completely different. We would be completely welcoming. We would get rid of all this no recourse to public funds. Yeah. And so on and so forth. I can't say that.
0: I guess, yeah, we can't, we can't get our crystal balls, I, I, I suppose. I, I, I guess it would be interesting to kind of, yeah, that's a whole project, I suppose, and people need to state their claims for what they envision an immigration system to be and whether immigrants are more than just people of economic value perhaps because i think that's one thing that i see sometimes when people talk about immigrants and you just said scotland needs people from outside because we're a shrinking country but what if we were to get to a point where that argument no longer has any relevance because we don't need any more so i guess it would be good to yeah highlight those those voices i.e. the refugees and other migrants on the ground who are fighting for their rights, to listen to them more closely, to hear what they're saying, because as you're saying, it shines a light and shows that things aren't that much different.
1: Yeah, they're not that much different. And it also brings us back to, I think you and I were talking um, over the last couple of days about, well, what's racism then? How, how, How do you define it? And I think what I've kind of explained there, it's very, very although we can say, well, this is a state form of racism, this is interactional. this is interpersonal racism, and we kind of have an idea of what institutional racism is, we've, we've seen that racism is... It changes over time, doesn't it? So, for example, with immigration, the problem was the presence. It was the presence of people, wasn't it? And then it changed into, well... Um, And when you look at policing, you you see how, and particularly the policing of black communities, where through immigration, the problem was the black presence. And then through the 70s, it was kind of evolved into, well, it's their culture because black people started producing, you know, um, they were self-organising, they were looking at America and the civil rights movement. They were, you know, producing different types of music and the problem was evolved into, well, it's their culture, it's their parenting. So racism changes and it evolves over time. So what I would say to people who are kind of looking for definitions, what we have to remember is, it's classed, it's gendered, it's um, it's kind of a... Um,
0: it's, it's intersectional, like it, it cuts, cuts across like every single facet of life because I think maybe some people might see it as exceptional or some things are like confined to certain events but not that it's like woven into the fabric of everyday life as you might see written in loads of books Um, that it's completely normal and that it affects everything really for white people and people who are racialized, not as white.
1: Well, if you look at how racism has an impact on those in the asylum system that's very different to how it has an impact on us isn't it it's it's incredible it's much much different so it's different for different people in different political conjunctures geographies and I think it's important to to basically say well we shouldn't really be talking about it in terms of racism we should be talking Um, about it in terms of racisms, there are different racisms and it changes when it intersects with austerity, with different kind of social divisions. You know, the way that, I mean, even within the black population, you look at how it criminalizes certain sections of the black population. I mean, at the moment where, you know, the big thing before Black Lives Matter was, knife crime. Now, racism didn't define the whole black community as participating or being victim to knife crime. It was a certain group, it was a certain young working class black um, group that it labelled as being vulnerable and being um, guilty of knife crime, even though knife crime actually is very, very Um, is as common amongst white working class certain sections of the white working class youth and not just in London so it kind of divides even those racialized communities so it divides those black working class kids from other black communities so it it has a function it has a divisive function doesn't it
0: why do you think I think I think one thing about that that for me and yourself and lots of other like-minded people lays bare how state racism works and how those narratives that a lot of time come from the state um, work to demonize certain communities. How is it sometimes you think that the state almost gets away with it or that state racism is so quickly swept under the rug or forgetting or or forgotten about almost? when it comes to how people think about anti-racism in general and when i say people I'm, I'm thinking more about um like the biggest institutional anti-racist um um moves and how those initiatives don't often talk about state racism when it comes to how we need to fight about it how how do they get a free pass
1: I think one of the, one of the things, and, and, and one of the reasons why I decided to work on state racism is, although there's lots of research on state racism, but it's often not called that. It's just called racism and it's lumped in with everything else. So it's almost like it's a taken for granted. And um, it's not until you go through the actual detail. That's why I thought it was important to go through the detail of those immigration laws to look at, look at how the state works, how would, you know, unless you actually know about racism and have studied it, how would you be able to argue, well, that well, that's racism? Yeah, and someone would say, yeah, uh, yeah, but they don't talk about race, they don't talk about your colour. It's just a rule, isn't it? But it's these ordinary rules and everyday practices that has that, that essentializes a certain group that that um, that negatively impacts on certain racialized groups. So um, and not just in terms of racial origin, you know, culture is now a euphemism for race because we do, we kind of went through a period where we weren't talking about race, but it's kind of Making a comeback now, isn't it through mm-hmm. eugenic and and and, um, and stuff? Um, so yeah, it's it is it's difficult, and they make it difficult. So unless you're an expert on racism and its history, that's why I suppose that's why it's really important to learn about the history. You know, it's not just about. Well, I mean, I remember the 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 time when I understood exactly not well I can't say I understand exactly how racism works I don't think anybody does um but when I reached a fuller understanding probably when well certainly actually when um I learned about the history and I learned the historical developments through empire through slavery of how racism developed and it didn't have to develop it didn't have it ha- didn't have to be that way you know when you look at empire you know it wasn't done because the british state was racist it was done because they wanted to make money it was about profit mm-hmm. it was about capitalism wasn't it you know and racism was used to justify it it wasn't the other way around
0: learning about that history is so powerful and i think for me as well painted like painted the picture about or that makes it clear that racism didn't or doesn't just pop out of nowhere that is part of like a a much a much longer story that when you start to piece it together makes quite a lot of sense really Uh, if you're going hundreds of years back or even 20 years back then you can see that there are linkages and then that story still continues. Because we can still see some of the same attitudes, some of the same structures in play. And as you're saying, the more explicit racism is even coming out more. So we can even see the historical precedence for for, for that. But I think you're completely right, completely right. That that history is so essential.
1: Absolutely, and that's why um, it's so important for schools and for educators. So, so, so like, for example, people like me, um, I mean, I'm I'm just beginning in in terms of my research journey, but people, you know, researchers. It's our job to kind of unravel and identify those histories and and identify that information, and it's for educators like yourself to kind of transform that into something that's teachable, you know. So, for, say for example, on immigration policy. Um, I wouldn't have a clue how to teach that. But if educators are aware of the history that, that, that's been unravelled and brought out in the open, then that that's basically for people like yourself to look at, well, how can I teach this?
0: Uh, yeah, I think, because all of our curriculum is, in a sense, informed by work, or a lot of it is informed by the work of academics like yourself. Like, all the content, didn't just pop out of nowhere there was there's lots of people who consult and like give their input onto what people in scotland should be learning what kids in scotland should be learning and i hope that the contributions that you've made and other people who are looking very critically at how racism works in scotland and the rest of the uk can start to be a part of the curriculum alongside and can be part of the curriculum in perhaps a way that is not just a matter of representation, perhaps, which doesn't necessarily lead to any kind of bigger change, but can be a part of a, a wider project. But I guess that's a story for a different podcast about how we transform the education system. Um, yes. Thank you so much, Sabina, Was there any last thoughts you had that you wanted to share? Um,
1: not really. I think we've gone... we've actually covered quite a lot, haven't we?
0: we have we've we've gone through almost 100 years of like legislation we've dove deep into how it works in different parts of the UK and like the asylum system um, and I think hopefully it's been really informative for everyone who's been listening and um, it has for me and it's been such a pleasure to hear more about your work because I, I, I know we've not really had a chance to speak properly about it so thank you so much for coming on to me, that was an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you for inviting me, and that was um, it. Was good to kind of get that out because it helps me as well to to understand and learn how to explain what I'm doing. So yeah, that was good. Thanks a lot.
0: Perfect. Thank Thanks. Is um, if people are looking for you on the internet to find out more about your work, how could they find you?
1: Um, oh God, I'm on Twitter, and I have a I have a university page. So if you just Google me at University of Glasgow and that will have my email address on it.
0: Perfect. Yeah, I, I think if people should definitely look out um, what you've done, uh, lots of articles and pieces that you can um, look up that Samina has written to learn more. So thank you once again, Samina. Um, and thank you to everyone who has been listening, um, coming again to learn more about racism and how it might intersect with education. Can't wait to see you for the next one. Bye.